Amen. In my hand here, I have a single piece of a jigsaw puzzle. And this piece is part of a picture, and it serves a purpose, and it has a place. But upon first opening the box and spreading out and laying out all of these pieces, it doesn't make much sense. It seems kind of abstract. It seems random. It seems almost accidental. It is distinct from every other piece that will be laid out. There's no other like it in any way. But because I know what this is, I know that it has a place. It has a purpose. It's part of a picture And without it, that picture would be incomplete. The Bible teaches us that God has a purpose for everyone that he calls. Just like the puzzle piece that I have here is unique and there's not another one like it, so also that's true for you. You are unique. You're random. Maybe a little bit abstract. And you might even think maybe a little bit accidental, like you're just a mistake, you know. Yet you're not. You were cut. You were formed and you're being fitted for a place in the picture that God makes. The Bible also teaches that there is a time for every purpose. And what that means is that you have a purpose and a place, but until the time for that purpose comes, there's always going to be somewhere in your heart a wonder, a why, or maybe a what for. And that carries with it maybe a little bit of frustration, a longing. It's a desire to be in the place, to be serving the purpose for which you were created, but yet waiting for the time that God moves you into that purpose for which he has made you. We've been looking at the life of David. It's been several weeks since we've been in 2 Samuel. What we've seen is a man with a purpose that was born in the heart of God from the foundation of the world. We see him as a piece in God's puzzle that was cut and shaped for the time, from the time that his great-grandmother gleaned in the foreign fields of Bethlehem for her and was finished being forged through the years that he ran in the fields of Israel from Saul, who was desperately seeking to put out his life. We see that he was a man who was forged and tested, who felt the frustration of waiting and wanting to know where and what God had made him for. But where we find him now, as we come to 2 Samuel chapter 6, is on the other side of all of that forging, fitting, and waiting. And now he is indeed in the place that God created him to be. He's at the very apex of his life and calling as we find him here. We see that purpose and time have come together for this young man, David, whom God used so greatly. He's now in the palace. He has won the favor and the affection of the people and the allegiance of the nation. He's loved by them, and he, in turn, loves them greatly. He has now secured Jerusalem as the united capital of a united nation, Israel. And what we see is that he is in what will be his best years, as we pick up the narrative from here. I believe that God has a similar season in mind for every one of us. We all perhaps will not be in the palace walls like David was. And none of our stories will look like anyone else's. But I believe that God has it in his mind to bring every one of us into a place where our purpose has its time. And we realize what it is that we've been made for, and we experience the fruitfulness of those years. 
John chapter 15, verse 16, Jesus said it this way. He said, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain. He's chosen us for a season of fruitfulness, our lives to be productive and in a way that it is lasting. That's what he wants for us. The Apostle Peter says it this way. It's one of my favorite verses in the New Testament. It's 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. He says, But the God of all grace, who has called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that you have suffered for a while, will make you perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. That's in the heart of God for every one of us. Whatever our season of suffering might be, or the time that we're being fitted or forged or formed into fitting the place that God has for us. Eventually, the time will come for us when we find out exactly what it is that God made us. So what are the lessons that we can learn from David in this season of success, we'll call it, in his life, when he finds himself in the palace, in the place where he's intended to be? Certainly, there are many. I think one of the things that's worth considering as we start at the onset of looking at this portion of David's life is to realize that it's way harder to succeed than it is to seek success. We think oftentimes the climb towards where we would like to be is difficult. And that's true, it is. We all can attest to that. But it's not as difficult of what it takes to not be destroyed when the season of success comes upon us. In 1923 in Chicago, there was a group of six business tycoons who met together to enjoy and boast about uh, their mutual success. And a number of years later, there was a, a journalist named Dr. William Cook who sought to find out what happened to those six business tycoons that were so successful in the early 20s. And this was what he found in the years that followed. That Charles Schwab, who was the president of the largest independent steel company, lived on borrowed money the last five years of his life and died penniless. That Richard Whitney, the president of the New York Stock Exchange, served time in Sing Sing Prison. Albert Fall, a former member of the president's cabinet, was pardoned from prison so he could die at home. Jesse Livermore, the greatest bear on Wall Street, committed suicide. Leon Frazier, the president of the Bank of International Settlement, committed suicide. And Ivan Kruger, head of the world's greatest monopoly, committed suicide. It's twice as hard to succeed, or to, I'm sorry, to live in success than it is to attain it. We saw what happened to Saul, a man who was successful without God. But what happens to David, a man who is successful with God? That's what we begin to uh, look at when we, we, we um, look at his life in this season. Now, throughout these next chapters, we're going to see both strengths and weaknesses. And we'll learn lessons uh, from all of it as we go. And so we come to chapter 6. And the lesson, the great lesson of chapter 6 is one that we all need to, to learn. And that is that God is God and you are not. David has secured Jerusalem as the capital of the United Nation at this time. They are united. They are strong. And as their king who loves God, he has a desire to bring the Ark of the Covenant into the city of Jerusalem in a newly constructed tabernacle or tent that he made because he wanted the glory, presence, and person of God to be the very epicenter of what the nation was and stood for. Now, for those that might not know, the Ark of the Covenant was that gold box. It was four feet long 
by two feet wide and two feet tall. It was overlaid with a seat called the mercy seat, a lid of pure gold. And on top of that were two cherubim that were molten out of gold that were facing each other with their wings covering their faces. And there were four rings in the base of the four corners so that poles could go through from end to end and the priests could carry the ark as the Israelites moved from place to place throughout their years in the wilderness or whenever the ark needed to be moved. Inside that box was the Ten Commandments, the two stones that had been written with the finger of God that declared the law of God for all generations. Also a jar of manna, the bread that God had provided for his people for 40 years in the wilderness. And also the rod or staff of Aaron that had budded in the wilderness. God putting his authority upon Aaron's ministry by manifesting a dead branch bringing forth buds, living buds in that way. And those three items were in the Ark of the Covenant. That's what it contained. What did it represent? It represented the very present, the presence of the everlasting, invisible God, his whole person, his mercy, his testimony, his word, and his power, his ability to do anything. And thus David, by wanting to bring the Ark into unified Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, symbolically, he's saying that he wants the presence of God to be at the epicenter of everything that Israel does, their entire existence. It's an awesome move, and it's done with an awesome motive, but it's done with an awful method as you begin to read the chapter and you see what he began to do. The ark had been in the house of a man named uh, Abinadab for the past almost 70 years. Remember that the Philistines captured it when Samuel was just a young man. And when the ark came back into Israel, carried by cattle, you know, there's a great story you can go back and read. They brought it to the house of this man, Abinadab, and it remained there until this time that David seeks to bring it out. And so David wants this to be a festive occasion, and so he hatches a plan. And he gets together all of the mighty men of Judah. He invites, most likely, the whole nation to be a part of it. He arranges musicians and instruments to be there. He wants this to be a great celebration, a huge party. But then what he does is he employs the two sons of Abinadab, two men named Uzzah and Ahio, to get the ark from where it was to where it was going. And so they construct a cart with wheels because that's how the Philistines had gotten the ark back. And David thought, hey, that's a good idea. It worked very well and it didn't involve the burden of carrying it all that way. And so they construct this cart and they have these two men driving the cart, Ahio going before, Uzzah going behind, all the music going along. And they begin this transition of moving the ark from Kirjath-Jerim to Jerusalem where it will find its place. Well, along the way, they come to the threshing floor of Nashon and the oxen begin to stumble. And the ark begins to lose its footing upon the cart that they had made and it starts to slip a little bit. And so Uzzah, whose name means strength, reaches out his hand to steady the ark and he touches it, which was absolutely forbidden. And at that moment, it says that the anger of the Lord was kindled and God smote Uzzah right there so that he died. Now, if they had records in those days, you would have heard the needle scratch right off the tracks. And all of the music came to a dead silence. It says that David even became a little bit angry in his heart because of what he knew that God did. And he was confused about what happened. The party stopped immediately. God wasn't into it. They were into it. They thought they were doing a great thing. Even it was from a pure motive, but God wasn't into it. 
I remember a few, actually it was about eight years ago, so I don't get too many boos and hisses for this. Um, I forgot about Mother's Day, you know. And, you know, eight years ago, I was busy. It was a busy time. Little kids, a lot of work, ministry, all sorts of things. And I was on my way home, and I heard something on the radio. Mother's Day, you know. So I was like, oh, no. And I stopped. I got a box of chocolates and flowers from the AMP. And I thought, score, you know. And I remember I went home that night, and I gave Georgia the flowers and the chocolate. I said, happy Mother's Day, honey. And she looked at me without expression. And I'm not joking with you. She said, I don't even want these. <laughs> and it was like the record scratch. There it was. You know, the end of the party. You know, I'm not into this. Now, she's not a flowers and chocolate person. She doesn't eat flowers. Uh, nobody eats flowers. Actually, she does eat flowers, if that's any indication of the kind of gift that she actually wanted. She, she wanted something she could plant, maybe, but not something that was already dead and she would just look at it for a few days, you know, whatever. But that was the sentiment that David received from God on this day. God was not into what David was seeking to do. It was a reproach. It was against God's way and against God's will. And thus God ended the party soon. And it says that David was afraid. And so he removed the ark into the house of this man named Obed-Edom, a, a, a Gittite. And he went back to Jerusalem. He didn't want the ark near him. But then he inquired. And I'm sure he prayed, though it doesn't say that he prayed. He was a man of prayer. He wanted to know what happened. Why was there a breach? Why did God interrupt the party in this way and stop the show when David was doing something out of such a pure motive? The answer is given to us in Scripture. It's 1 Chronicles chapter 11, verse 15, and it says this. It says that David called for Zadak and Abiathar, the priests. They were the high priests. And for the Levites, which were also priests. For Uriel, Aziah, Joel, Shemaiah, Eliel, and Aminadab. And he said to them, you are the heads of the fathers of the houses of the Levites. Sanctify yourselves, you and your brethren, that you may bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel to the place I have prepared for it. For because you did not do it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not consult him about the proper order. So the priests and the Levites sanctified themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel. And the children of the Levites bore the ark of God on their shoulders by its poles as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. The reason Uzzah died was twofold. Number one was the method that they were using to bring the ark was contrary to how God wanted his glory, his testimony carried. He didn't want it carried by mechanical things, carts and wheels. He wanted it carried by the sanctified priests, those that have been called by God, the men and women, but not, you know, I'm getting into the application ahead of time. It was actually men in that context then, that he had called to carry that testimony, his priests. They were subverting the ways of God using innovative Philistine methods, and it was contrary to what God wanted. The other reason is because Uzzah touched the ark. The ark, again, the glory of God. God says, I will not share my glory with any. And when Uzzah stretched out his hand and touched the ark, it was symbolic. He was touching God's glory. And the result of it was that he died. Well, David prepares things the right way. They go about it a second time in the second half of the chapter. This time with the priests. This time the music party is way simplified. It's voices and trumpets and a few simple things. And every six paces they stop and sacrifice to the Lord. And it says that David danced. He removed his royal robes, making himself just a common man because we're all common men in the eyes of the Lord. 
And he danced with all of his might before the Lord on his way. And then it says that they set the ark of the Lord in his place in the midst, which is where God's glory and presence belongs amongst God's people in the very middle. And that's where it was brought. Well, David then blesses the people. He gives them gifts. Then he goes home. He gets grief from one of his wives, uh, Michal, who was the daughter of Saul, who was not happy about David's undignified worship, the way he danced there. David rebukes her. The chapter ends by telling us that she remained barren for her whole life that she never bore. So what's the application in all of this, the takeaway for you and I? First of all, for you and I in our worship to the Lord, our motive and our method are both important. It's not enough for us to just say, well, God knows my heart, and so therefore the way I worship him or follow him or profess him or live for him is irrelevant because my heart is right. God knows I love him. That's not enough. It's not enough for us to just say, well, I love him, so that's, that's what, you know, whatever. How I live doesn't matter. The Bible says that we must worship him in spirit and in truth. Psalm 24, it says, Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord, or the presence of the Lord? And it says this, He that has clean hands and a pure heart. And so for us to have maybe a pure heart, but to not have clean hands, or to worship God, but not worship God according to how He has prescribed and said that He is to be worshipped, or to believe in God, but not to believe in God according to who He tells us that He is, is to worship contrary to what He wants. And it's a breach congregationally we apply this, it's important, because this ark represents God's presence and his testimony. God's presence and testimony, his glory, is to be born in the hearts of people. He says that he makes his temple, his habitation, in us. We are the temple of the living God. And the worship of God is always born by, the testimony of God always born by the people of God. Not the things of God or the places of God or the mechanics of men as they seek to uh, express him through creative or, or, or mechanical means. Romans chapter 11 verse 36 says this. It says that all things are of him, through him, and for him. Of him. It means that it's his will, the way he plans it. Through him means it's his power, his performing of it. And for him means that he gets the glory. The opposite of that is self-will of me, self-effort through me for the sake of self-glory for me. Of me, through me, and for me. And the two things are as opposite as night and day. The worship of God is of him. He's the one who tells us how it's to be. Then it must be through him. It's his power, his method, his way. And ultimately, he gets the glory. If I come up with my own ingenious way of serving God or worshiping God, then I also have to produce the elements of divine feeling through that. My effort, my hyping it up, my bringing God into something emotionally through the way I speak or the way I sing or the way I present a building or create presence amongst people through me. And ultimately, if it works, who gets the glory? I do. There's a problem with that. What happens when man touches God's glory? God's not happy about that. He says, I'm not going to share my glory with another. Philistine methods were being employed to do living God work. It worked for the Philistines, David said. It's, in, it's ingenious. It's simple. We don't have to burden a priest. We're just going to do it. 
but they were corrupting the glory of what God wanted his presence to be amongst the people. I I was looking for this quote um, when I was preparing this because I thought it really fit. And while I was looking for the quote, I stumbled onto this uh, short blog that contained the quote. So you'll get the quote. But I want to share this entire uh, passage with you because it it really speaks to how this applies to the church today. I don't know who wrote it, um, but it says this. I think it was a long time, it was long time chaplain of the Senate, Dick Halverson, who said, in the beginning, the church was a fellowship of men and women centered on the living Christ. Then the church moved to Greece, where it became a philosophy. Then it moved to Rome, where it became an institution. Next, it moved to Europe, where it became a culture. And finally, it moved to America, where it became an enterprise. My introduction to this enterprise was in the late 60s as a college student employed by Word Records in Waco, Texas. Word had begun in 1951 as the brainchild of Gerald McCracken and the publishing of a single recording, The Game of Life. Gerald originally presented this one-man recreation of a fictitious football match between the forces of good and evil on Sunday nights in churches around central Texas. Everywhere he performed, he had requests for copies and eventually began to press his own records. That small beginning eventually became the major publishing company we all know today. I worked in the Word Warehouse, stocking books and organizing inventory. I remember walking in the first day and seeing hundreds of split boxes and books spilling all over the floor. Records were stacked up in corners or piled into cartons to be shipped. Flyers announcing concerts around the south were scattered and waiting to be swept up when they expired. The business was growing faster than their capacity, and you could sense the boundless enthusiasm of those days before the entrepreneur was absorbed by the corporate owner. Sometimes gospel groups like the Happy Goodmans, the Cathedral Quartet, the Florida Boys, or Backwood Brothers would come through in their buses. They all all loved Jarrell and the people around him. I loved it. Soon, I moved up to selling new titles on the phone at night to Christian stores across the country. All those stores were mom and pop and the owners made the decisions about what products to carry. If they liked you and the products you recommended moved off the shelves, it was a good relationship. This was before buying decisions were made elsewhere, and these small stores folded or were bought out and franchised. To be sure, the signs of the worship industry that blossomed in the next decades were already obvious. There was money to be made, and it attracted the attention of international players. Gerald sold the first part interest to ABC in 1976. When ABC merged with Capital Cities, he was ousted from the company. Eventually, word was then sold to Thomas Nelson, and then to AOL Time Warner, and then to Warner Music Group. This last sale for $2.4 billion was led by Edgar, Edgar Brofman and a group of investors. Tonight, as I remember this, I'm far from home, sitting in the nave of the First Methodist Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. The youth and children's choir is singing a choral evensong of hymns and prayers while the sun sets behind the stained glass. An old woman in front of me is resting her head on the pew beside her, not quite sleeping. Attentive parents and grandparents are listening for the one voice they came to hear. Strangers, like me, have stepped inside to be a part of the fellowship tonight. I am old enough to know that this church is far from perfect, but listening to the choir and reading the words of Scripture together as a congregation reminds me of a time that has not passed here. This is not an industry or an enterprise. It is a church. There are no microphones or sound equipment, just the vault of the chamber, the organ and our voices joining theirs as we lay this day to rest. Now on land and sea descending brings the night its peace profound. Let our vesper hymn be blending with the holy calm around.
Now our wants and burdens leaving, to God's care who cares for all. Cease we fearing, cease we grieving, touched by God, our burdens fall. Jubilate, jubilate, amen. I believe that God weeps when he sees much of what is done in his name throughout churches and what drives and sustains them today. Many churches have left off the power of the Holy Spirit, the simplicity of the gospel, and the sufficiency of his word, and they've exchanged it for production, for impressive facilities, for polished speeches that touch emotions but can never affect the deepest part of the spirit of man. And sadly, God is not in much of it at all. I think this is one of the most important chapters for the church in our day to really consider and think about what's important to God when it comes to the expression of his name to a lost world through the church that he has called. There are a handful of times as you read through the pages of scripture where God makes a point by taking someone's life. The first is with Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Aaron who were representing him as priests, but they were doing it under the influence of a chemical or foreign substance and God smote them for their error. The second time is here with Uzzah and the other time is with Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament, Acts chapter 5, when they lied to the Holy Ghost and they sought to bring hypocrisy into the church. It's interesting that in every case, every time that it happens, it happens when they replace the true and simple relationship with some counterfeit that magnifies the appearance but negates the reality. It's very grieving to God. And it's an important lesson for the church tonight. That's chapter 6. Now we get into chapter 7. David learned the lesson, by the way. It was a good one for him to learn, is that it's very important how you represent the Lord. He is God, we are not. In chapter 7, we have David's desire to build the temple. As of yet, there was only a tent or a tabernacle that contained the articles of worship for the people of God in those days. As they would move, the tent would move. It was portable, and all the things in it could be moved. But now that the people were in the land that God had promised and David had established Jerusalem as the capital, he had a desire to build a temple, a permanent house where the people of God could come and congregate, sacrifice, and worship the Lord. Now this chapter has three sections. First of all, David's initial request as he asks Nathan if it's okay. Nathan was a prophet. The second of all is Nathan's response, that is his secondary response, after God says, hey, I need you to go back and amend your message. And then thirdly, third part of the chapter, David's reaction to Nathan's response from God. So David's request, Nathan's response, then David's response to the answer that he received. Well, David's request, first of all, it says that he was sitting in the palace, that he was at rest from all of his enemies. He realized how good God had been. And he said to himself, I dwell in a house that's made of cedar, but the ark and glory of God lives in a tent with curtains. That just doesn't seem right to me. How could I be in a palace, but the glory of God is in a tent? And so he called for Nathan, and he said, I want to build a temple for the Lord. And Nathan looked at David, and immediately his response was, do whatever is in your heart. That's a great act. It sounds like it's from a pure motive. Go for it. But Nathan went home that night, and God said, Nathan, you didn't ask me if it was my will. And so I need you to go back and talk to David. I've been that, Nathan, uh, at times when I speak too quickly uh, for the Lord and you have to go back. You know, maybe you have too. You know, uh, after you sit for a while and God speaks to you, well, that's what happened. And God spoke to Nathan. So Nathan was sent back to David. And, and this was what God spoke. This is what God said to Nathan about David. He said, will David build me a house? 
He said, I have walked in a tent and in a tabernacle from the time that I called my people out of Egypt until this day, and I've never asked anyone to ever build me a house or do anything ornate or big for me. I've been content to just dwell and live amongst my people. That's what I want. I don't want a house. I want to dwell with them. My work in the world isn't about places. It's about the people. And so I'm content to do that. I've never wanted to do it. So you go and tell David this, God said to Nathan. Go tell him that I took you out from among the sheep and I put you into the palace. I've cut off all your enemies and I've made your name great, like one of the great men of the earth. And God said, I'm going to take care of that. There will come a day when there is a place where the people can come. But it's not for you to build, David. Here's what you need to know. Part two of the message is that I'm going to build you a house, David. Now, he wasn't talking about a house of cedar or a palace or a bigger one on the bluff or a vacation home somewhere in the south coast. He was talking about a dynasty, a descendant line that would come from David's loins, a line of kings that would ultimately end in the king of kings, that is the Messiah. That I'm going to build him a house. And my servant will sit upon his throne and it will be an eternal throne. And his name will go down in all of history. That's what I'm going to do for David. And his house will be established forever. You need to go and tell David that. And so, essentially, God's answer to David was, no. You want to build me a temple? No. You can't build me a temple. It's not for you to do. It will be built by your son, God said. And that would ultimately be fulfilled in Solomon. But the house God was more interested in was the house that he would build through David's descendants that would end with Jesus, the Messiah. Well, When Nathan delivered this message to David, it says that David went in before the Lord. He sat one-on-one just with him and Jesus. And one of the most beautiful verses in all of the Old Testament is there in chapter 7. David begins his prayer by saying this, Who am I and who is my father's house that you have brought me this far? I think that's a verse that every one of us, if we read it and really think about it, we can all echo the sentiment of David. To think about where we've come from and what God has done within our lives and what he's doing within our lives and what he has purposed for our future. Every one of us can say before the Lord, who am I? What is my father's house that you have brought me this far? He gives thanks. And then he extends worship and deep appreciation for what God has done for him. And then he prays and he says, God, now do what you said you're going to do. Great way to respond to God's promises is to just turn around and pray them. And it's a beautiful prayer of David's as he responds to God. So what's the application uh, of this chapter for you and I now? David's motive to want to build the house of God was absolutely pure. It came from a deep and real appreciation for what God had done for him. Now, you and I, we need to realize what God's done for us. Do you realize what God has done for us? And sending his son Jesus to take our place in judgment... And forgiving us of all of our sins and writing our name in his book as we come to him in faith and receive him as our savior. He removes us from the kingdom of darkness with a destiny of hell and he brings us into the kingdom of light, makes us citizens in heaven, writes his name upon us and begins working within us from the inside as he makes his home in us. And he begins forming the, the person of Christ in us as he takes us from glory to glory to glory. We have a hope that's laid up for us in heaven, an inheritance that's incorruptible, undefiled, that's reserved, that no one can touch. And he's made us one with his son. We are the very bride of Christ. We occupy in position the highest place that one can have in heaven, being the bride of Jesus Christ. 
God has done great things for us. But do we have the kind of appreciation, even knowing what he's already done for us at this point, that David did? Saying, Lord, I want to build you a house. How do we build a house for the Lord? Here's how. The Bible says that you are the tent or the temple of the living God. And he desires to dwell in you. But he wants a suitable dwelling place. And so how do we do that? We say, Lord, have your own way within my life. Whatever you want me to be, whatever you want me to think, whatever you want me to do, Lord, form that place within me. I open my heart for you to do whatever you want within my life, that this heart might be a pleasing place for you to dwell and move and operate within the world. That's what God wants for us. And that's our worthy response for what he has already done for us, just like it was with David. You've done this for me, Lord. I'm in this palace. Now I want a place for you. And that's what God wants for us. Also, uh, number two by way of application, the Christian life is 99% about what he has done for you and only about maybe 1% what you do in reply or in return. God didn't save you to do things for him. He didn't save you because he needed servants or someone to serve in the Sunday school or the Pioneer Club. That's not why he saved you. He saved you because he loves you and he has a place for you within his kingdom and his picture that he's painting. He wants to do for you things. He has done for you things that you can never repay, that you'll never understand, that you'll never comprehend. That's what he wants for you. And our call is then to just respond to that as he leads us step by step and day by day. But it wasn't about God wanting David to build the temple. It was about God wanting David to enjoy him in relationship. Number three is this, that God's knows, when God says no, it's always because there's a greater yes. There are times when we have absolutely pure motives and pure desires and things that we ask for the Lord. I think of some people that have a genuine desire to serve God in some capacity of ministry, but for whatever reason, God doesn't open the door. God, I want to serve you. I want my life to be used for you. And for some reason, God says no, and we don't understand why. There are other people that want to be parents. They pray earnestly that God would grant them the privilege to raise a child or to bring up life. And for whatever reason God has, he says no. Pure motive, pure desire. But for some reason, God says no. Sometimes it's to get out of a situation that's not pleasant or whatever it might be. And sometimes God says no, and it can be so confusing when he does. But know this. It's a principle of scripture that when God says no, it's always because there's a greater yes to something else. He always has a purpose that goes beyond, that's greater than the thing that we so desperately long for. And in time, it will make sense. Number three, or number four rather, it's noteworthy here that David doesn't pout. When he gets a no answer, he doesn't say, oh God, well, I'm not serving you anymore. You know, this is ridiculous. I I have a great motive here and now you're saying no and so I'm not going to do it. David responds with thanksgiving, but then here's what he does. He says, okay, God. You're not going to allow me to build the temple, so here's what I'll do. I will assemble and gather all of the materials necessary to do it, and I'll even drop the plans so that when my son comes along, all he has to do is take what's already been provided and put it all together. It'll be a modular temple. And so he gathers all the materials. He puts up about $100 million of his own money into bringing that all together, and then he says, all right, God, your way, your time, so be it. He can't do what he wants to do, but he does do what he can do. It's a great response, a great attitude when God says no. And finally, and it's the lesson of the chapter, it's so important for you and I to be thankful, to be grateful for what God has done. Maybe you're not even there at the point yet where your puzzle piece makes sense. 
But if you're redeemed by Jesus Christ, and he's alive in your heart tonight, and you have a place in heaven waiting for you, then God has already done exceedingly more than you and I deserve or that we could ask for. And it's so important that we remain grateful. Well, we come to chapter 8 and things move a little bit quicker. Uh, now, it, we see that David in chapter 8 continues to take territory and to grow. The chapter highlights the battles that he fought now that he's in this place of reigning established as king. He goes against the Philistines and sub, uh, subdues them some more. He goes against the Moabites, which is actually quite interesting. If you recall, his great-grandmother Ruth was a Moabite, and his parents stayed in Moab while David was running from King Saul. So you kind of wonder, why, David, did you go up against the Moabites? And we don't know. Some speculate that maybe uh, the Moabites killed his parents. There's some reason here. We don't know what it is, but David uh, takes them down makes them subservient to the Israelites. He goes against the Syrians, the Ammonites, the Amalekites, uh, and, and some others that are there, and he continues to take territory. And then the chapter ends with the description of David's government. It again describes the peaceful position that God had put him in, and then it lists for us his cabinet. And it tells us who was, were his advisors, and it's, it's amazing how small it is. First of all, there was Joab, who was the secretary of defense. He was in charge of the military. There was Jehoshaphat, who was the secretary of state. There was Zadok and Ahimelech, which were the priests. There was Saraiah, who would be the press secretary. There was Benaiah, um, who was uh, in charge of homeland security and the secret service. And then there was David's sons, who were called chief rulers. Uh, basically, that's a very polite and nice way of saying his sons got jobs, uh, <laughs> which happens in a monarchy um, or in the United States in these days, you know, Either way, you know, but that's just how it works in politics. But what's the application of the chapter for you and me? Here's what it is. Is that there's no such thing as coasting in the Christian life. I shared with you earlier that it takes twice as much work to succeed than it does to attain success. One of the keys to succeeding well is that you don't stop growing just because you're at a place of rest within your heart. The first step towards disaster is when you begin to just coast. And David's going to do that by the time we get to uh, chapter 11, and it's not going to work out uh, so well for him. But for you and I, it's so important that we continue to gain ground. You are either growing or shrinking at any given time in your Christian life. There's no coasting, no neutral ground. So where are you? Are you growing? Are you taking territory? Do you still harvest the promises and principles of Scripture and ask God to produce them within your life to bring you further? Or have you come to a place where you say, well, I know a lot, I do a lot, and so it's probably enough and sufficient for me to just be where I am. So important for us to continue to grow. The second thing that, that, that's here, and we see it in David's cabinet, is uh, the importance of order uh, within our lives. I think that, you know, by, by nature, we're all disorganized. But I think the more that we grow in the Lord and we recognize him as a God of order, the more he orders our lives and helps us to, to be organized. It's not that we have to be organized to grow, but I think that growing, a fruit of growing, is that we will be more organized. I'm amazed at how small David's government is. I mean, there's really only six people here that are, are his cabinet. And it, and it is a fact that if a people is submitted to God, then their government can be very small. But when a people turns from the Lord then the size of government has to grow because you need more laws and more restrictions and more means of enforcing laws and you need to just build it and build it and build it because of godlessness and that will continue until a society just collapses upon itself. And it will happen to Israel uh, a, a few hundred years into their future. But at this point, 
The people of God are walking in the ways of God, and therefore the government is extremely simple. In chapter 9, we see David's kindness to a fellow named Mephibosheth. When David was running from King Saul, that time of his life when he was a refugee, fearing for his life, Saul had a son named Jonathan, and Jonathan and David were the best of friends. And during that time, David made a covenant with Jonathan that they would always do each other right. And Jonathan said to David, promise me that in the future, when you are the king, because God's going to make you the king, that you will do right by me and by my descendants forever. And David promised. He made that promise. And so here in this time, the season of success within his life, he now reaches back into his mind and he says, is there anyone from the house of Saul still alive that I can show kindness to because of the covenant and the promise that I made with David. And so he asks the question, and someone comes to him and says, well, there's a servant of Saul, excuse me for a second, (coughs) I feel way better, thank you, whose name is Ziba, and if anyone knows about existent relatives, it would be Ziba. So David sends for Ziba, finds out, yes, there's one son of Jonathan remaining. His name is Mephibosheth, and he's lame in both feet. We find out that at one point his nurse was carrying him, fleeing in a time of battle. She dropped him, broke both bones, and they didn't set right. And so for the rest of his life, this man Mephibosheth was lame and he couldn't walk. So David calls for Mephibosheth and he says, bring him here to me. Mephibosheth comes in fear. Usually when a king would take over the kingdom of another king, the first thing he would do is slay all of the family and servants of the prior king to keep any rebellion from uprising. And so Mephibosheth thought that he was coming to lose his life that day. But when he comes, David says to him, fear not. He says, I want to show you the kindness that I promised, the kindness the Lord has shown me and the kindness that I promised to show uh, to your father, Jonathan. And so he says, I'm going to restore to you all the land that was Saul's, your father, and you are going to eat at my table continually. I'm going to bring you in and you're going to be a part of my household uh, forever. And, and so God, he does it. He makes all of the servants of Ziba and all of the former servants of Saul, now servants of Mephibosheth. They reap the harvest. Mephibosheth's bank account grows, and he doesn't have a care to worry about for the rest of his life, and he eats continually at David's table. So what, what's going on in this chapter? What does the, the Lord want us to see? And here, here's the application for you and I, is that the true evidence of growth in our Christian walk and experience is that we become more Christ-like. There is not one point in David's ministry or life that he is more Christ-like than he is here in this time right now. He treats Mephibosheth the way he himself had been treated, the way Jesus deals with us. Now, listen, you and me, we are Mephibosheth. Who was Mephibosheth? He was a man who was wounded in a fall and unable to walk. That's us. We were wounded by the fall, the fall of Adam that happened at the beginning of time. Because sin entered the human race, we're unable to walk in the ways of God that he's called us to. But yet God didn't forsake us. Who, what else? Mephibosheth. He was sought out by King David, just as we are sought out by our Savior, Jesus. He doesn't just leave us in that position to die in our lameness. But he searches us out, he finds us, and then he calls us to himself. Thirdly, Mephibosheth expected condemnation because of who his father was, but instead he received mercy. That's just like us. 
We come to God and we expect that we're going to receive condemnation, that he's going to blast us, that our destiny, our eternity is hell because our father is Adam, because we've fallen. When we come to Christ, what do we find? We find mercy. That he says, fear not, I have salvation for you. We also see that Mephibosheth benefited from a covenant that was made long before. It's like you and I, we're benefits of the new covenant. Covenant that was made before any one of us was born. But yet we're benefits of that covenant. It's why God sought us out. We see that Mephibosheth had lost land that was restored to him. The territory that was taken was then restored. The Bible says that when we come to Christ, he restores to us the years that the locust, that the canker worm, that all of those devouring insects have taken from us. He restores to us all that we've lost. For some of us, that's great things. Some of us have lost our minds prior to coming to Christ, and he restores and renews it. Some of us did damage to our bodies, but with him we find healing and grace. Some of us are sanity. Some of us so fearful that we think we'll never be able to function normally. But his spirit moves into our life and he restores that which was previously taken from us. We see that Mephibosheth was included at David's table. and We are also called to the table of Christ. He invites us to eat at his table. And it says in Psalm 23 that he prepares a place before us at his table in the presence of his enemies. A place of great and high honor. And I think one of the most incredible things to me is that Mephibosheth was not a burden being in David's house. You would think, here's a man who's lame on both feet. He's obviously high maintenance, and yet he's invited, welcomed, and he's not made to feel at all like he doesn't belong. I don't know about you, but I often feel like I don't belong in God's house. I don't belong at his table. But yet, just as Mephibosheth was not a burden to David or his family, you are not a burden to Jesus Christ. He is pleased and blessed with who you are. And David manifests the character and nature of Christ in this chapter through his kindness towards Mephibosheth. And that is the very kindness that Christ has towards you and I. Too often, we forget who we are in Christ and what he's done for us. But we're called to extend the same hand of mercy and love that we've received to others. David does it, and it's the evidence of true Christian maturity. It's what we're called to be. We'll stop there for tonight. I know uh, we're supposed to get through um, chapter 10, but chapter 10 has a great tie-in with uh, chapter um, 11 uh, and 12. So we'll we'll stop right there tonight, and um, we'll pick up in our our survey, our our flyover uh, of of Samuel when we uh, continue, and the worship team can come. But as we close, what we see in this season of David's life is we see what happens when purpose and time come together. We see David bearing much fruit and enjoying what God is doing both in and through his life. God knows exactly what we need. He's got us on a course. He's preparing us for that time when all things will come together. You might be here tonight and you might have unclean hands, an impure heart. You might think that just because you're in a church right now or you're in a church service or because you wear Christian t-shirts, or you call yourself by the name of the Lord, or you do some good things, even though there's some things that aren't right in your life. Listen, the Bible says, who will abide in his hill, his presence? Them that have clean hands and a pure heart. Your motives must be matched by your actions. And it's so important to God that we don't worship him according to what we think is acceptable, but according to what he says is. And he always provides for us the power to do what he's called us to do. I would encourage you as we worship tonight, if there's anything at all that the Holy Spirit would put in your heart, and you've made the church 
or you've made the Lord something that he was never intended to be, or your expression of him or experience of him is something other than just him dwelling within your heart and you walking with him in relationship, this is your opportunity to respond to the Spirit of God and say, Lord, search me, know me, try me. Renew, refresh, revive, cleanse me, Lord, and make me yours again. Some of you might be here tonight and you don't know yet what it means to really be the temple of the living God. To, like Mephibosheth, find mercy in the eyes of a compassionate Christ who gave his life for you, who shed his blood upon a cross with your face in mind. He has a plan for you. Just like that puzzle piece that serves a purpose, he's forged, he's fitting you because he has a place for you. And listen, his kingdom is incomplete. There's a hole missing in the picture. He's waiting for you to respond and say, Jesus, come into my life. I need your salvation. I want your spirit. I want to know what it is that you've made me to be. That's where life is. I encourage you, if you have yet to make that commitment to Christ, don't waste any more time. Talk to one of the pastors here. Talk to the person that came with you. Receive Christ. And if you need prayer at all for anything after the service, find one of us. We'd be happy to pray with you. Let's pray together now. Father, we thank you so much for the power of your testimonies your truth. We thank you for the eternal word of God, Lord, that feeds us so deeply. Lord, it penetrates to the very core of who we are. We thank you, Lord, that you love us that much, that you would condescend, that you would come and be among us, and that you'd continue striving with us, Lord. We could be so stubborn, our hearts can be so cold, but yeah, Lord, we find in you such love. And we just ask tonight, Lord, that we again could lay down every part of our lives and that we could be completely yours. Take us, mold us, make us what you would have us to be. Send us forth with your power in your presence. Let us experience your love. We thank you so much for this time tonight. We ask you to bless us as we go. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand together.